Gweezy, Autumn Schnell Vilji, Chief Jim Cooey, Janet Cooey, Jacqueline Cooey, Wade Schnell Shadeji. Welcome to the fourth episode of Recoding Relations, a podcast series on Indigenous new media and the politics and potentials of the digital humanities. Co-created by Melissa Haberl and I, this series captures some of the key themes and discussions of the 2018 Symposium for Indigenous New Media, which was held as a part of this year's Digital Humanities Summer Institute at the University of Victoria on the unceded territories of the Wasanich, Lekwungen, and Esquimalt peoples. As members of CITR's Indigenous Radio Collective, who produced the show Unceded Airwaves, Melissa and I traveled to Victoria this past June to attend and record presentations at the conference. The Symposium for Indigenous New Media, or SINM, was a gathering place for folks studying and working in new media, indigenous studies, and the digital humanities to come together, share ideas, and discuss critical issues facing the field. We listened to scholars from over 20 institutions and three continents present research on topics as diverse as indigenous video games and virtual reality, communications technology, digital texts, social media analytics, indigenous language revitalization, and archival digitization. Melissa and I are excited to share some of those conversations with you here and to hold up the community building and digital innovation we saw at the conference. We hope that this series inspires more learning, dialogue, and relationships across the digital humanities and indigenous studies. So this is Senzen Barazzo. Um, it's also called the sand tiger or the sand shark. Gentler in nature than the tiger sharks I now know in Oceania, the tiger name is allegedly added to appeal to aquarium collectors to make this shark, which is very gentle, seem a lot more dangerous. Sometimes it's called the gray nurse shark, the ragged tooth shark, the dogfish shark, or the grounded shark. Again, we know it as Sesen Marasso. But this isn't any story. This is a specific story which had a specific place in time. Um, and I grew up on the lands and waters of the Wampanoag. And I wanted to note that this story is happening in what's called now Buzzards Bay. <laughs> so and it's actually not a bay of buzzards either. When the first colonists settled there, they thought the osprey they saw were buzzards, and therefore they named the bay Buzzards Bay. <laughs> I'm specifically talking about Horseneck Beach. And there you'll find many, many sand sharks. They run really close to the shore. Sometimes they actually almost beach themselves and then splash and thrash and go back into the water again. So for me, they are very liminal to think about as well. Um, and in a particular case, I don't know when I developed a sudden fear of sharks. I've always grown up in the water. I could swim before I could walk. But for some reason, I grew terrified of them. So my father, who's, again, I, he's my family... I'm the first person in my family to go to college. So my father thought, well, she likes to read books, so we'll get her a book on sharks. <laughs> I don't know if you can see the title, Splendid Savages of the Sea. Needless to say, this did not help. I could then quote how fast the Mako shark could swim, how many great weights had been found with human corpses, and so on. <laughs> so I, for a little while, I actually refused to go in the water. We camped on the beach every summer. We caught and collected our food every day. This was not going to work. <laughs> My father, much like the sand shark, is a very gentle man. He was 6'2", built like a lumberjack, but incredibly kind. I don't ever remember him spanking us, but he almost did. I refused to go in the water, and we were surf casting so that we could eat that night. And I remember he ordered me out there, and he's like, there's not a shark in sight. You get in the water right now. And sobbing and crying, I, I walked out to him. And the minute I stepped out next to him, a small sand shark about three feet long zipped right between my legs. So I threw my hands back up and ran away. <laughs> I refused to go in the water for the rest of the day. 
eventually I got over this unknown terror of the two-foot depths of the ocean <laughs> and I got over it. But I have a fondness for sand sharks and I always will. So the VR experience is going to actually have a sand shark in it that interacts with you in particular ways. So I wanted to also think about how in the story I just shared, what I'm going to do is explain recoding in a minute and I think the sand shark recoded me and my father in that moment. It recoded my father because it reminded him that he can't say what is and isn't in the water at any given time. We are guests there. <laughs> but it also reminded me that not every shark is the savage of the sea on the cover of the Jacques Cousteau book. And there are many interactions that had been playful or taught me in particular ways. That was my first lesson in recoding. You just heard a clip from Michelle Brown. Prior to attending SINM 2018, I had absolutely no idea what the definition of recoding was or how it could be used. I think Michelle beautifully explains what recoding is in a very practical sense. Recoding is a form of remediation because Michelle is rewriting something that is from her perspective, kind of like how the sand shark did exactly that. To me, remediation is also a form of reclamation. It's taking back something that was rightfully yours and making it into yours once again. In episode four of Recoding Relations, we're going to be talking about remediating. We are going to hear some more from Michelle Brown about recoding, and then we will hear from Sarah Humphreys and Trina Chambers about the authentic, unedited version of the novel Katsuya and their problems with the editors of the novel. Finally, we'll be hearing again from Jordan Abel in episode two of Recoding Relations. You heard Jordan Abel's preamble to his audio piece, and in this episode, you're going to be hearing his piece. The first person that we will hear from is Michelle Brown. Here's what Michelle had to say about her project, Recoding. Victoria, British Columbia. Iri onetako yoralde eta urei. Maitasuna eta begerune toki onetako jendei. Lukwengeneteri, songi sateri, et eta, this one's tough, esquimatoteri, eta saznekteri. Niri zendogariak, emen saudete denok, eskerikasko. Michelle Brown, ni nais. Uskaldan, nais ni. Saxon, nais ni. La prudendira nere yoralde eta urak, eretegia ondartsa ondoen, oa itik nator, kanako mauliren hecheik, gaur emen zuekin egoteko. Mesedes, parkatu, uringoen obeto, idsen jingo dugu, sure zendogaria, emen nakasute ni. So this presentation is the foundation of a research project. I'm going to start in Uskalharia, Basque Country, the La Perdi region, and then design and programming sessions in Hawaii and possibly at the Abtech Lab in Concordia. The goal is to take a seemingly Western construct, VR, and show that by encoding it with indigenous or non-Western relational protocols, it opens up to other temporalities, meaning-making, and recoded connections, relational practices that transcend the exclusive human or mammalian, the online-offline binaries. The subject of this particular piece will be water, specifically itzas, seawater. Itzas helps me to parse through indigeneity as a relational responsibility, in tension with complicity and ongoing settler colonialism in multiple realms. So recoding, I'm actually drawing on the re in parentheses from Michoan and Goman's remapping method and mark my words, Native women mapping our nation. She uses the term as a powerful discursive discourse with material groundings in which she, I would address the unsettling of imperial or colonial geographies, end quote. 
I also took the term in parentheses to follow what Stephen Loft notes in Media Cosmology to break away from these enforced linear temporalities and binaries like re hyphen often does. So using the re within parentheses, Goman articulates a process of traditional and new storytelling of survivance. And she's careful to note how this weaves in older advanced indigenous technologies into newer mediums, using concepts of space and time that move beyond the linear. Using re in parentheses is a break from settler colonial logics of time and place, a shift which recognizes that native women are reconstructing their own understandings of space. While these understandings, and this is from her text, while these understandings are different for each author, they are rooted and routed in cultural understandings and connections that span centuries. And often it is only the articulations of these concepts in contemporary media that are new, and even the modern formats carry traditional aspects. And that's in the notes to the introduction. So I often think of it, if I'm trying to explain it to my friends, they're like, what did you just say? <laughs> I'm like, all right, think of the parentheses as a portal. And stuff comes in and out, and things can get all bending in time and space in our conceptions of them. And I'm using coding here because I'm thinking through text and stories as kinetic. Um, and the coding is programming, how to relate, how to act, how to be and how to think. Um, in our language, uskalharia means the place or the space where the language is spoken. And so I also want to think carefully about that when I think about whose other lands and waters that we're on. If I say I'm uskaldan, it means I am one who has the language. So I don't just speak a little bit, but I have it. I have a fluency in it. I can think and act in it. It codes how we think and how we are. And if we think of languages encoding and code operating in layers as well when it's on and when it's off. I, drew, I was drawn to this in thinking of coding because I like to think of the porous boundaries of online-offline. We have lots of stories of realm jumping and crossing spaces and times that have happened in many ways and places. I also want to think of coded as layers of meaning. Some you understand if you know the language and culture well, others you don't. And these layers are interacting and playing, challenging each other. But again, for those who don't know, it's just a surface reading. And I think of Dave's excellent example yesterday of the text and the code stream behind it. And I want to think about how those meanings have surface readings and backdoor intricacies and intimacies as well. So in short, I guess thinking of them as ways in which ancient ways of operating can flow with new operational systems to create ways to recode ourselves, or as in the case of something like Elizabeth LaPonce's Thunderbird Strike, it can recode others as well. So these next slides are from the comic Liminal in Relational Constellations. Um, it's told from the multi-layered perspective of myself as an Arain Egalaria, which is a flying fish, and it was my Nana's nickname for me when I was younger. It also takes up the idea of relational practices between realms. For me, there's an idea of motion and sound in each image, sounds I hear embedded in the page in my interaction with it, but I recognized as I wanted to work on a longer project, these might be better express expressed through VR than perhaps a digital graphic novel. So the VR project will also take up similar ideas, but with the sand shark. That our practices and protocols will shift depending on where we are, which also ties for me to diaspora, those outside their territories, those cut off from communities for various reasons. This is not to malign or minimize self-governance or organization, but it's to remember that as we talk about digital humanities and indigenous digital media, to remember that there are indigenous communities around the world. There are also those that are in urban spaces and not on their homelands and waters. I've also been thinking about trans-indigenous to sort of apply Chadwick Allen's approach more broadly here, practices and protocols and room for individual expression. 
So maybe perhaps some of our wise practices may also need to be a bit more fluid, as other indigenous and governance social structures differ from those we may know in our particular contexts. Last, I also wanted to note before I move on to the end that this technology has costs. I've heard sustainability a lot here, and I got excited at first, and I don't think data, where the data is stored and how long it lasts is important. But I also want to note that communities have paid dearly for the tech that we use. And I don't want us to wallow in guilt or give it a moment to nod and then move on, but to, to carry that tension with us, to think about sustainability as not just data longevity, but being careful and making the most use out of each iteration of the devices we have, then recycling in them in ways that recognize those costs. So again, that's kind of heavy, so <laughs> back to my story. So I'm starting a small VR project, which I hope to build into a larger series with a song. Uh, much like the opening bird so, um, it's a song offered to salt water this time, ocean water, recoding it some of the ways in which we interact with it, offering a potential way to give back to it, to relate with it. But I'm also perhaps most interested in what I'm calling seepage, though that sounds kind of, I might need a better sounding term for that. <laughs> what I'm talking about is the way that recoding will linger after a VR experience has stopped, how I will be recoded in the making of it, and how the VR experience interacts with each user, the technology, the environment they're in differently. So I don't yet know where this process will take me, but I look forward to my own recoding and as the opening bird so was a process of connection and relating, so too will this be one. So, it's good to Thank you so much for sharing your project with us, Michelle. It's been so interesting to learn from you and your project and how you're helping your community. Sometimes remediating isn't always giving back to your own community, though. It can be giving back to other communities that are in need or misrepresented, and that's exactly what Sarah Humphreys and Trina Chambers are doing. Now we're going to hear about their project with the popular known book, Kautsuya. Uh, thank you for the hospitality here. I'd like to acknowledge that we're on the Lekwungen people's land, and now the Songhee and the Squamalt First Nations, the Wasonic people, whose historical relationship with this land continues to this day. This acknowledgement of the ongoing relationship that these nations, these people, and have with this land that we are gathered on is important, and it shapes the work that I do and the questions that our team asks of the digital humanities. I'm Trina Chambers. I am a Métis person. I grew up on the lands and the waterways of the Sinix Nation. Um, I grew up in a community that largely ignored the history of the people of the land and erased them. And this public erasure of these people, I hope that in my time here and in my academic work, um, I can push against other acts of erasure that occur and that can occur both consciously and unconsciously. Um, there was talk yesterday about how digital humanities is, is, how indigenous digital humanities is political. And for me, the digital humanities period are political. Too often we see the politics of the powerful centered as the norm and not as political. And we need to remember when we're doing this that that is political as well. Um, I came to the Kutsuya, I'm trying to work out the sound of the name because we had it differently before, but we've uh, been using the new the name that the Okanagan people would use with it. Um, the Kotsuwea people and the people in the text projects because I had a very undigital skill. I could read cursive writing and not a lot of the RAs that we had could, <laughs> which comes from being both old and... <laughs> 
Yeah, so um, I transcribed a number of handwritten archival documents, which um, we then stored and shared among researchers in digital format. And from this, I was slowly pulled into the land of DH. And being new to the land of digital humanities, as I acquired the new skills, I started to ask a lot of questions. Some of them there were easy answers to, put a comma there, there's a closed bracket, backslash. Some of them are not so ready for, some of them are not, that don't have so ready answers. Um, sometimes I describe my role in the Kotsuya and in the People in Talks project as the person who stands around and throws uh, grease into the wheels. <laughs> or not grease, sorry, sand into the wheels. <laughs> I slow everything down with, oh, but is that a poem? Really? Isn't that uh, applying something backwards onto cultural production that wouldn't have described itself that way? And so that's what we in our projects try to keep in mind, is to um, center these questions and these points of views, these indigenous questions and indigenous points of views, when we are looking at both current production and past cultural productions. Um, working with texts that are cre out, created outside of the digital world, um, that have been produced by Inuit authors, even a term like poetry, as you heard earlier, can be seen as contentious. These wouldn't be the words that people would have used to describe the work. So as we code things to add to our annotated bibliography, we are asking these questions, and it's really slowed us down, but in a good way. It slowed us down and had us really consciously think about how we're applying terms, to what we're applying terms, and being uh, responsible to the people and to the terms that we're using. On the other hand, Kotsuya the a novel by Morning Dove. Um, the Morning Dove, the author, clearly sees herself as producing a novel. It's not an ethnobiography. It's not, um, like, it's not an autobiography. It's clearly a novel. She sees herself as producing something in a new form, and she's actively engaged with that. So the other thing we think about is making sure that we don't erase those acts as well and don't pretend to know that or think that current production um, or people that were engaged in these kinds of productions in, say, 1920s weren't making those choices. And we don't want to minimize the choices that they are making at the same time. Um, I don't have any slides because Sarah is going to come up and talk to you about her uh, incorporation of twine and digital projects with Kotsuya. So I am an uninvited settler colonist guest on this land. I acknowledge and respect the Lekwungen speaking peoples on whose traditional territory the university stands, the Songhees, Esquimalt, and uh, Shunic peoples whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. I am grateful to be a part of this incredible conference and I'd like you to meet Morning Doves Kojuya. Kotsuya. Published uh, in 1927. It was republished in 1981 by the University of Nebraska Press with a new cover and introduction. The text itself was replicated along with the notes by Morning Doves uh, white editor, Lascelles McWhorter. Uh, Lascelles Virgil McWhorter. You just don't hear names like that anymore, do you? <laughs> Kotsuya is a standard in many university courses. Um, I am a privileged white scholar. I make mistakes, lots of them. I need to rework my language and understanding. I'm working on it and I'm receiving a lot of help. 
Uh, I try to take a back seat to the indigenous scholars who inform the remediation of this novel into a text-based game or interactive fiction. I'm working with this novel only because uh, Morning Dove restructured the Western through her Okanagan knowledge. I am trained in Western American literature, rhetoric, and linguistics. The cross-cultural nature of the novel is one reason I'm working with it. The other reason has to do um, with two students who I taught in a course in 2010, actually, uh, Kara and Sarah. They work together on this project. It's still up on WordPress. Uh, Kara is an Anishinaabekwe, excuse me, with Haudenosaunee roots and is a member of the Bear Clan and community member of the Wicca-Mekong Unceded Indian Reserve. And Sarah is mixed heritage of French, Mi'kmaq, and German roots. And they wrote this incredible blog, which is, again, still up on WordPress. So these students told me they really liked the novel. They enjoyed the way Morning Dove revised, or I would like to say, I argue, incorporated uh, Linda Tahiwai Smith's language. She, Morning Dove rewrote the novel to rewrite it. Um, but they were really ticked off. They were ticked off by the regalia on the cover art, uh, the intro, and the explanatory notes. So it turns out my students were much smarter than me, because at that time, I didn't... I just used it. I just included it, right? Because everybody else did. That's how I was taught. So I learned. And so I did some reading. And I learned that editing, as you probably know, as a Western cultural, economic, and epistemological practice, is grounded in systemic discrimination and colonization. Kateri Akawinti Dam shares the perspective of Metis writer and Canada Research Chair Warren Carew, who explains that, quote, there is a long and unfortunate history of Aboriginal stories being appropriated, expurgated, and distorted in colonial culture, and these abuses have often occurred under the guise of editing. It is very important for editors to be aware of that history and work very hard to ensure that their editing practices do not consciously or unconsciously continue to create such distortions, end quote. So now what? I'm an editor. I'm actually producing, uh, with a lot of help and guidance, a print edition of the book, a digital edition, and a playable edition. What kinds of interventions can digital spaces and affordances combined with following indigenous protocols and practices, specifically Okanagan Silix practices, whenever possible, what can they achieve? We're working on it. We don't quite know yet. Um, but we took, the, we took this uh, quote from uh, Deanna Rader and Linda Moore as a kind of call to action. And they write, it's still not uncommon for students from first year to graduate school and even for university faculty and staff to have limited knowledge of indigenous histories, literatures, and social contexts. So as a way to rethink the academic editor in addition, uh, a central question we asked prior to remediating Kotsiwia was how a scholarly edition might become an interactive structure, inviting the reader to participate, take responsibility, learn indigenous literary practices and approaches and social contexts. How do we create a space in which the cultural integrity of the text is maintained? Perhaps print texts have become too conventionally embedded within Western publishing paradigms. It is a colonial construct. 
Can a non-expert reader, whatever that means, uh, move beyond their habits to view print texts within culturally specific norms? In other words, if Morning Doves Quotsiwia uh, is published with foot or ed notes or explanatory notes, if it has an introduction, uh, it's got the paratext, in other words, everything that surrounds the actual tech, uh, content, can her novel be interpreted as anything other than a formal academic edition bearing all of the expectations, colonial expectations, readers bring to such a, a work, an academic edition. A playable edition can perhaps address these questions. So we've chosen Twine to use Twine as our platform, and the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for Riot Games, Soha Karim, describes Twine as a tool for reimagining and redefining modes of storytelling. It can help to give voice to lesser heard voices. The playable scholarly edition of Kotsiwia follows a tradition of interactive fiction to engage the user, uh, not simply through reading, but teaching the user how to read in order to proceed. This aspect of interactive fiction is crucial to our remediation of Kotsiwia. And so what I'm going to do is share the principles that, have, that guide our game development, which flow from the concept of indigenous cyberspace. So... Um, Loretta Todd notes that cyberspace offers a way to express the connection between mind and body, between the material and immaterial, and interconnectedness, as opposed to Cartesian ideas of duality and separation. So Todd directly asks, can native worldviews, native life, find a place in cyberspace? She muses, although native worldviews cannot be easily typified, it is fair to recognize that they embody the desire for harmony, balance, and unity, Within this worldview, the individual is endowed with freedom to express and experience singular emotions and thoughts, which are then shared with the community through narrative, ceremony, and ritual. How do these concepts fit into cyberspace when cyberspace has been created within societies that view creation and the universe so differently? One that creates hierarchies of being that reinforce separation and alienation with one that seeks harmony and balance with the self and universe, and, and the universe, and we could ask that question of academic publishing and editing. Um, so her answer to this quandary offers another path for us to follow as we remediate, remediate Kojuia. First, it's not about making cyberspace more inhabitable for white folk. Rather, finding a way to indigenize cyberspace is about ensuring it does not become yet another colonial space, uh, consuming all and caring nothing for what appropriates and consumes. As we worked to build a playable edition, I gathered the principles for creating such a space, hopefully, and the projects that inhabit that sp these spaces. And they are summarized from the work by Stephen Loft, Loretta Todd, Arthur Pachawis, David Gartner, Elizabeth Lepense, and Mike Patterson. So the first, I would say principles, but I like that idea of wise practice. <laughs> sort of, these are just guidelines for us to follow as we do this work. Actions have consequences. Not everything and anything can be uploaded and shared. There are limits to knowledge. Cyberspace is not limitless and utopic. Those who use this space must be responsible to the communities they represent. Therefore, indigenous philosophies must be central to any space that claims to be indigenized. So I've got a screenshot from the game. The game is actually a pinned tweet. And I'll go all the way down here and say, here's my uh, Twitter handle. It's a pinned tweet on my profile page. So you can actually play it if you want. It's open. To, it's a beta version. It's rough. <laughs> Don't touch me. Okay. <laughs> no, judge away. Um, so this screenshot in the game is from Chapter 28 called Swalikin the Frog Woman. 
So we included the background to the land that Morning Dove chose to set her novel on. Um, we tried to enact what uh, Dave Gartner says is necessary to indigenize or indigenous cyberspace to communicate the language of the land and the presence of indigenous peoples. And here we're trying to be responsible to Morning Dove and her Okanagan Silix community. We depend on Morning Dove's grandniece, Canada Research Chair, activist, Okanagan Silix scholar, Dr. Jeanette Armstrong, to tell us what to share through her dissertation and other work on Kotsiwia. We do not assume we can share it all. We, do, we seek guidance on what we can share. Two, indigenous ontology and epistemology express ideals of cyberspace before cyberspace was thought of as a technology. So interconnectedness, storing data via science systems, and so on as has been mentioned in so many presentations. In this screenshot, I wanted to show uh, that the game doesn't fall into the trap of salvage ethnography, um, which is fueled by the myth of the vanishing Indian. The idea here is that indigenous presence is present, vibrant, and crucial to all of our survival. Joanne DeNova writes in Spiraling Webs of Relation that the Western worldview is peculiar. It is the worldview of genocide and death. And the way to survival for all of us is to respect other ways of knowing. So we try to guide readers to grasp, for example, the lessons of sustainability, ecological sustainability, which is in this chapter, chapter 28, where Densmore, the representative of colonization, is fishing and fishing and fishing, and Kotsiwia says, for God's sake, stop. Leave some for the next guy, will you? And so we built into the game this choice saying you can wager, they have a wager going on how many fish they can catch. And he just wants to catch as many as he can. And uh, morning, uh, Kotsiwia, excuse me, is saying <laughs> no. So then the reader can then wager. And when they click on the button, they're given the reasons why Kotsiwia is saying these things. And that's about it. <laughs> okay. So... Um, uh, in Kotsiwi, or more importantly, that we wanted to uh, grasp, have, allow the reader to grasp the lessons of sustainability, or more importantly, that Swalikin the Frog Woman is not a myth. It is a story vital to survival. And this is the story that Morning Dove wanted to share widely. Three, cyberspace is a return to the oral interactive elements of storytelling to story. The interactor is important and as a story. Um, academic editions tend to elide the reader. The edition becomes just another way to gain prestige, grants, promotion for the faculty person who writes it um, or edits it. Uh, the community and the user, reader, or interactor has little to no standing in the text. Interactive fiction makes this elision impossible or less possible. The reader has to be active, engaged, and be engaged with. So this is, uh, so we've included uh, explanatory notes, but they're interactive. You can click on them and add to your inventory of knowledge. So we have an inventory. You can collect the knowledge, and uh, you can share it. This is the final um, guideline. Uh, indigenized cyberspace makes connections. It is a social space where knowledge is shared and is virtual but not disconnected from material reality. It is a space where the user is not immersed but connected. Uh, there's reinvigoration through shared humanity. And this screenshot shows the affordances or tools for interactors to be more connected with the text. They gather, again, gather knowledge in an inventory and take it with them throughout the story. So our hope is that we have created an inclusive, indigenized cyberspace where the user is given responsibility of the story, like a gift rather than an object to be taken. The traditions and knowledge that inform Kajulia are central 
rather than obfuscated by the editor's voice and paratext, everything that surrounds the content. The above, these four guidelines have helped myself and others associated with the project to ensure that our interactors or players, quote, privilege indigenous and local place-based knowledge and value such knowledge as a sophisticated system. So I just want to thank uh, the people in the text, David Gartner, and also, of course, I forgot somebody, the ETCL, Electronic Textual Cultures Laboratory, who gave me the time and space to work on this project. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for telling us more about this interesting journey. It's so neat that Trina and Sarah are doing this project. This book is so common and popular um, in institutions such as universities, and it's really neat to see people so determined to share the authentic version of the book, because I know that it's seldom shared. Finally, we're going to hear part of Jordan Abel's keynote. In this part, he's sharing an audio piece called Injun. The piece speaks for itself, so we're just going to take a listen now, but there is a content warning. This piece contains some strong and violent language directed towards Indigenous people on Turtle Island. If you're sensitive to this, tune back a little later for the ending of the podcast. We play Injun in God's country where boys prove themselves clean, dumb beasts. Cut fire out of the whitest sand. He played English across the trail, where girls turned plum, wild garlic, and strained words through the window of night. We spoke through numb lips and breathed frontier. He heard snatches of comments going up from the riverbank. All them engines is people first. And besides for this buck skin, why we even shoot at them, and seems like a sign of warm, dead as a horse friendship, and time to peddle their eyes, to lean out and say the truth. All you engines is just white themselves, clean, dumb beasts, some fire out of some crooked swelled. Bent towards him and produced a pair of nickel plate English across the trail. A bone winder of dirty tenderness and stiffened into that armor of ice and strained words that dead ancient gained. Confessed over a fire, numb lips, and two grains of bright luck crowned through his ear. The antipathy of peace heard snatches of comment going up from the riverbank storm. The bucked gold and water, all then injuries to a reasonable first. And besides, a reserve of gas that means why may we even shoot us in? And it seems to be like a sign of warm, dead, and talk of friendship. Only time to peddle their eyes is to lean out and save your traveling home. From life drops. All these engines is just that some might consider just part of the dreams. Some fearful dreams, some incredible swell, and towards him produced a pair of nickel plated stained waters, a bull wandering underneath tenderness that is stiffened faces of that low who proud eyes, trigger fingers, and dead engine gain one straight trail. In fast over a fire and bad two yards of bright luck packed through a vein and dreamed boils. 
so much for sharing your art with us, Jordan. It's so important to reclaim several hundred years of literature that were written about us and not by us. I'm so glad that someone put in the emotional labor to create pieces like this. I'm sure it wasn't easy to read and share some of the things that you did. So thank you so much for doing this. 
You just listened to episode four of Recoding Relations. A big thank you to everyone who participated in the 2018 Symposium for Indigenous New Media, particularly the organizers Dave Gertner and Jordan Abel. Thank you to our partners, the Digital Humanities Summer Institute at the University of Victoria, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the First Nations and Indigenous Studies Program at the University of British Columbia, the Department of First Nations Studies at Simon Fraser University, Indigitization, CITR Radio, and Unseated Airwaves. To learn more about the Symposium for Indigenous New Media, visit indigenousnewmedia.wordpress.com or search the Twitter hashtag SINM2018 to catch some of the key moments and conversations of the conference. This episode was produced by me, Autumn Schnell, and featured music by Chris Dirksen and Morning Coop. We would like to thank Jordan Abel for sharing your art with us, as well as Michelle Brown for sharing your virtual reality project. And lastly, Trina Chambers and Sarah Humphreys for sharing uh, what the journey has been like in the Katsuya story. This episode was produced in Amiskwichi with Sky Again on Treaty 6 territory of the Cree, Métis, Nakota Sioux, and Soto peoples, and aired on unceded, ancestral, traditional, and current homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. I'm Autumn Schnell, and that was the final episode of Recoding Relations. Thank you so much for taking this journey along with us, um, and we hope that you learned something, because I know that I definitely learned a lot. Well,